0: Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I am the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I will be speaking with Leanne Wheeler, Professor of History at Binghamton University. Her book, How Sex Became a Civil Liberty, published by Oxford University Press, examines the role of the American Civil Liberties Union in establishing sexual rights as grounded in the U.S. Constitution. Wheeler begins in bohemian New York with the personal biographies of individuals who established the ACLU for the protection of anti-government speech. Early ACLU leaders displayed sexual proclivities and outlooks outside the Main Street. Beginning with the obscenity laws that hampered the distribution of contraceptives and birth control information, the ACLU legally pursued sexual practices, expression, and the right to privacy as civil liberties. Representing their own clients, building coalitions with advocacy groups, providing legal briefs to decision-makers, directing activism, and influencing public opinion, the ACLU brought about change in a wide array of laws that had restrained and criminalized sexual behavior and expression. This was not a smooth process of advancement. The implications of class, race, and gender created conflicts, contradictions, and ironies In establishing the sexual rights of individuals against the contrary rights of others to unwanted sex and sexual content. As blacks and women entered the ranks of the ACLU in the 1960s and 70s, they brought new conflicts within the ACLU's sexual rights agenda. Reproductive freedom, rape shield laws, homosexual rights, and the rights of profit-seeking pornographers are some of the many issues of ACLU advocacy. While seeking to build a privacy wall around sexual expression and practice, sexual rights advocacy contributed to the current cultural saturation with sexual images and messages blurring the lines between public and private. Wheeler has provided a thoroughly researched, complex, and compelling history of how issues surrounding sexuality became recognized as civil liberties guaranteed by the Constitution. Here's my conversation with Leanne Wheeler. Let me introduce you to the author today, Leanne Wheeler. Hello, Leanne. Good morning. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with my audience. Your book uh, has many twists and turns and unintended consequences and ironies, which I found very fascinating, about the history of the ACLU's attempt to advocate for sexual rights. But before we get into the book, uh, first tell us something about yourself your background, how you came to write this book. Sure. Um,
1: And thank you for having me on this show. I'm really delighted to be here today. Um, The book came out of both personal and professional experiences. And I'll start with some personal ones. I grew up in a fundamentalist Christian home. I grew up with very conservative, um, around very conservative ideas regarding sexuality. Um, It was associated with, you know, shame and secrecy. And so when I began to find... Um, basically I began to find feminism when I was in college, and that helped to open up to me a lot of ways of talking about and asking questions about issues of sexuality. So that that's kind of the background. I, I grew up feeling like it's something that I couldn't talk about, and in college I found that ways to talk about it. Um, then when I was in graduate school, I was teaching a course on, um, on the history of free speech, basically. I called it Pornography and hate speech. It was an undergraduate honors seminar with about, I think, 15 students. And what I found in that class is that I began it with a survey to try to get a sense of where the students were coming from um, on issues of pornography and hate speech, hate speech and sexuality in general. And I was surprised to find them talk about their personal discomfort with pornography but yet the fact that if their partner wanted to bring pornography into their home they would of course allow their partner to do so because their pornography had a right to free speech and that meant a right to have pornography in their own home and I thought wow that's so interesting that students are talking about rights and civil liberties in ways that can conflate what I consider to be public rights with you know their private lives. So, that, so back in, I guess that was in 1994, 93 I started becoming very interested in issues of um, how we think and talk about sexuality in terms of rights, how that kind of blurs boundaries between public and private. Um, and then I let that go for a while. I decided to write my first book on the history of women's activism against obscenity. I was very interested in issues of pornography in part because of my own background and also because... Debates between feminists in the 1980s over whether pornography was sexually liberating or whether it was oppressive really engaged me. But I had a hard time thinking about those in the current context. They confused me. Um, And I found that by pushing them back in time and looking at ways that people, women in particular, thought about sexual imagery, sexual expression in the early 20th century helped me kind of get get enough distance on the issue to think about it more sanely. That book, Against Obscenity... Um, looked at one side of the question, looked at women who w- were opposed to sexual, the new, new forms of sexual expression in the early 20th century. My second book, How Sex Became a Civil Liberty, kind of flips the question and looks at people who were defending sexual expression and trying to make it more available in public spaces. So in a way, the books are looking at two sides of the same question. And I think that comes directly from my own background of growing up very, very conservative fundamentalist Christian, finding feminism, and then finding myself confused about these issues.
0: Well, one of the things that you say in your book at the very beginning is that sexual expression was never really seen or it was irrelevant, seen as irrelevant to the U.S. Constitution. But it seems also that the law was everywhere when it came to sex. The law was uh, there. Were all kinds of laws. So talk to me about what it, what the situation was before uh, uh, the laws were beginning to be challenged. What kind of laws did we have on the books? Sure. So after the Civil War, um, in the 1870s, Anthony
1: Comstock. Um, managed to push through federal laws against obscenity that were then mimicked in the states and in localities around the country. So it wasn't until the 1870s that the United States started to have a proliferation of laws against what was called obscenity. The term obscenity applied to lots of different things from abortifacients to birth control to, um, you know, nude picture postcards um, to condoms. So it was a really broad category. Um, What I found in my first book, Against Obscenity, is that women's anti-obscenity activists tried to reframe that category. They wanted to use the term obscenity to apply only to material that they thought would possibly corrupt children's sexual maturation, sexual development. Um, And... And women anti-obscenity activists thought that what children really needed was very explicit sex education to help them learn about sexuality in wholesome ways. So that their first learning about sexuality wouldn't come from burlesque shows or motion pictures, you know, popular culture, but would come from scientifically based wholesome sex ed. Well, they created very explicit sex education materials in the 1920s that were under the law considered obscene. So women anti- obscenity activists wanted to reshape the definition of obscenity so that it would not catch in it sex education but would continue to make popular culture or, or commercial expressions of sexual um, ideas um, less available to children. Um, okay so your question was what ex- okay so the Constitution was considered completely irrelevant to these issues. that the courts had said obscenity is not implicated in the First Amendment. As you know, the First Amendment is the amendment that provides for the freedom of speech, and the courts had said flat out, obscenity is not a part of speech that is incorporated in the First Amendment. So most people considered
0: the Constitution just irrelevant. Now the the founders of the ACLU, uh, first you have in your first chapter, you have a little background about their lives, and their sexual proclivities and their attitudes towards sexuality. And you're, you're implicating that. You're saying this is part of what was motivating them forward. So talk a little bit about who they were and their attitudes about sexuality before they even begin to advocate within the ACLU. Sure.
1: Um, the ACLU was founded by um, primarily by Roger Baldwin and Crystal Eastman, who were two very left-leaning um, progressive-era activists in the 19-teens, and by 1920, by the end of World War One, they had kind of become very critical of progressivism, in part because they saw that World War One as kind of an example of how their progressive ideals had failed. Despite progressive reform, despite the fact that they'd elected the progressive Woodrow Wilson, the nation had still been dragged into a very brutal and ultimately repressive war. In fact, during World War One, the um, presidential administration passed the Espanolism and Sedition Acts that were used to repress the speech of anti-war activists like Roger Baldwin and Crystal Eastman, um, they came out of World War I very critical of government power, of state power in particular. And this, is, this led them into civil liberties activism. They started wanting to defend the rights of individual citizens against the state. Um, people like Roger Baldwin and Crystal Eastman were not simply political activists. They were also very deeply involved in the bohemian culture of Greenwich Village in the 19-teens and in the 1920s. So they were involved in relationships that were often referred to as free love relationships, meaning that they didn't necessarily believe that you had to have a monogamous um, marriage. Um, They got married, but they proceeded to have and to defend sexual affairs within marriage. Roger Baldwin in particular told his first wife, Madeline Doty, that um, he insisted on having you know, um, the right to do as he wanted within his marriage. He kind of used a civil liberties idiom to talk about his rights within a marriage and his rights for his own to seek his own fulfillment, which included to have sexual relationships with other women. This was very typical of many of the people who helped to form the original American Civil Liberties Union. So they weren't just radical and left-leaning with regard to their politics, but also with regard to their personal
0: ideals about sexuality. And I thought that whole chapter was just fascinating. I learned a lot. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about how they moved from speech to beginning to think about advocating for sexual expression first? Sure.
1: Sure. Um, And I just want to point out that I was kind of interested to find that these early ACLU founders reminded me of my students from the mid-90s and that they were importing these civil liberties ideals about sexuality into their private relationships and private spaces. Um, In any case, initially, they really thought about the First Amendment in pretty narrow terms. Freedom of expression was about, freedom of speech was about speech. It was about speech you give orally. It was about speech in print. Um, It was about, it was not about conduct, not about practice, not about what you do. Um, But early ACLU activists, some of them were actually casual nudists, and some were very involved with or friends with nudists. Um, The nudist movement was a very vibrant movement nationally and internationally in the 1920s and 1930s, and in the course of... Practicing nudism themselves and getting to know nudist activists, kind of the hardcore nudists whose lives revolved around nudism as kind of the solution to the nation's ills, Um, the ACLU leaders found that nudists were getting caught in obscenity laws. They were getting arrested for – they were getting arrested for – for publishing magazines and publishing newsletters that explained their nudist lifestyle and that depicted their nudist lifestyle. They were also getting arrested for um, having nudist events where women and men who were not related to each other would come together in, say, a public gymnasium that was reserved for a special nudist event, um, and they were arrested for, you know, depravity for being nude together in this public space.
0: Now, let's be clear then. Nudism was not particularly a sexual freedom movement, was it? It was more about something else. What what was it about? Because it really wasn't about, you know, pornographic sort of things. That's a great question.
1: Um, Most people who aren't familiar with nudism see it as a sexual movement because most people associate nudity with sex but nudists saw nudism very differently in fact they saw nudism as a way to desexualize the human body and to undercut the ways that the commercial culture seemed to be trying to appropriate commodify the human body nudists argued that if you strip the human body of all adornment of all clothing that what you really do is you you know take it down to its essence and that if people if women and men are nude around each other, they will cease to think in terms, in sexual terms. They'll simply relate as human beings. In addition, they thought that, that nudism would help to decrease class differences because often it's through accessorizing and you know clothing ourselves that we express class differences. So nudists were also very opposed to those kinds of hierarchies. They were very idealistic. And I found, um, I did research at the American Nudist Research library in uh, Kissimmee, Florida, which is in the middle of a nudist resort. Um, And I was surrounded by nude nudists as I was doing my research. (laughs) So I really felt immersed in the culture as I was trying to learn about it. And I found myself really caught up in their their sincerity with which they thought they could counter um, capitalist, commercialized sexuality. In the 1930s, I think they really thought that they could could car- at least carve out um, a space an environment that could counter it. I believe as I followed the nudist movement through the 20th century, I think they lost that battle and got sucked up into that culture themselves. Um, but in the 30s, they're they very idealistic and and, and and very adamant about the fact that their movement was not about it was not about sexuality. It was not sexually perverse. It was anti sexualization of the human body.
0: Now, one of the first movements, uh, issues that they got involved in, the ACLU got involved with, was Margaret Sanger and her birth control movement. And there was a difference between what Margaret Sanger and the birth control movement was after and what the ACLU was after. They didn't seem to be totally parallel together, but they used each other. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, what Margaret Sanger wanted is she wanted birth control to be available to all women. Um, And she was willing to make a lot of compromises to make that happen, including one of the most major compromises that she made was to agree to, to turn her movement into a doctor's only movement. She was willing to turn birth control over to the medical profession if the medical profession would agree to support birth control, meaning stop opposing it, and would agree to pour resources into it, to train people in Um, to train doctors in prescribing birth control and to invest money in research on more birth control methods. Um, The ACLU, however, was more interested in using birth control, using the movement as a way to push and expand freedom of speech. So initially, the ACLU defended Margaret Sanger and other birth control activists on the basis that they had a right to speak publicly about birth control. They had a right to distribute information about birth control. So the ACLU was really um, very directly um, challenging Comstock laws that said birth control was obscene. Eventually, the ACLU realized that um, by the 1950s, really, the ACLU had realized that if it wants to, if it wanted to really continue to support the birth control movement, it had to go beyond supporting the right of birth control activists to freedom of speech and needed to also defend um, their right to conduct and practices, their right to, for example, um, prescribe birth control to individual women, their right to sell birth control to individual women. And that kind of helped them stretch their defense of birth control itself and sexuality more generally from simply speech to include conduct and practice as well. So nudism and birth control both helped to move the the ACLU over that bridge.
0: There was also an issue with uh, theaters live theater, and the kinds of things that were being uh, produced on uh, trying to defend the right of theater owners and uh, playwrights to produce plays that had sexual content.
1: Right. And that's something like the the first, the anti-obscenity activists I studied in my first book were really opposed to a lot of the sexual display that was happening on burlesque stages. Women were coming out and stripping nude on burlesque stages in the 1930s. And the ACLU... Um, Took on that issue in the 30s um, in really interesting ways. First, the ACLU thought that it was, in fact, highbrow art that was being targeted by the police. They thought it was, they noticed that it was plays that were about lesbianism, plays that were about um, infidelity, plays about abortion, highbrow plays that were being written by ACLU leaders themselves, like Elmer Rice. Those plays were being targeted by authorities. And ACLU leaders noticed that a lot of burlesque shows were getting no attention whatsoever. So some ACLU leaders went to visit some burlesque shows and took notes on what they saw. They're like, ah, women are stripping nude and the police are doing nothing. And they took that to the police and said, listen, you're being hypocritical. You're going after our plays about lesbianism, and you're not going after these, you know, lowbrow burlesque shows. So whereas most historians have seen, have argued that the police went after lower class Popular culture. In fact, the ACLU thought the opposite was happening in the 1930s. The ACLU thought it was highbrow culture ideas that were being targeted by um, the authorities in the 30s.
0: Wasn't it part of it that live theater was in competition with a film that was coming very strong? And so, one of the one of the arguments you talk about, or one thing you talk about, is the fact that theater owners felt like they had to do things that were a little bit more shocking in order to get audiences into theaters because people were going to the movies. It-
1: Absolutely. In, in the 1930s, that I mean, everybody was competing for anything in the 1930s because it was a time of Great Depression. Um, also in the 1930s, the movies got sound. So the movies are, you know, the, the movie industry is becoming, is really becoming kind of the Hollywood, more like the Hollywood industry we know today. Um, it's starting to produce um, feature-length films that have studio stars that people recognize. Um, it's becoming an, an international phenomenon, really, already by the 1930s. And once it brings sound into it and movies are much cheaper than live shows, there's really a lot of competition for um or for theaters between um, live and um, and and screen shows.
0: Now, in this early part of the ACLU, it was uh, mostly dominated. Even though Crystal Eastman was involved in the founding of the organization, it seems to be dominated basically by men. Men are driving this.
1: Absolutely, it is. It's primarily men who are. In fact, Crystal Eastman is not involved in the ACLU very long. She was very. Sickly, um, and realized that she needed to really focus her energies on the, you know, the issues that were most important to her, and she pulled out of the ACLU pretty soon after she helped to found it. Um, but men, men dominated the organization. But I think one interesting thing about the ACLU is that it was never solely men. There were always a few women included um, in the leadership of the organization, on the boards, for example. In addition, one thing I do in the book is I show that the Female partners of the men who led the ACLU were important influences on things that the you know issues that the organization took on. Um, so so women had some influence from the get go, but you're right they never they didn't have the um, the level of influence that men did.
0: Now the the next step that they took beyond uh, freedom of expression was making a connection between being free to see and hear whatever you want. And consumer rights. And this was fascinating because then you begin to see uh, capitalism, economic systems, sort of converging with the ACLU's attempt to establish sexual rights. So talk about that a little bit for our audience.
1: Yeah, one of the most exciting and interesting and fascinating findings that I made was um, that the – that The ways that we think about the First Amendment today are fundamentally different from the ways people would have thought about it in the 1930s, in part because most people in the U.S. today think that they have a right to read, a right to see a movie, a right to hear a speech. Um, And we think about our right to free speech, our First Amendment rights, in terms of our right to consume. And in fact, that would not have been, no one thought about freedom of speech that way before the 1940s, and few people thought about freedom of speech that way until the 1960s. What I found was that the ACLU was absolutely at the forefront of completely changing the ways that people thought about the First Amendment. First Amendment had been considered a producer's right, the right of people to produce speech. What the ACLU did was stretch it to include the right of people to consume speech. The ACLU, ACLU leaders claimed that, oh, yes, the the First Amendment has always meant this. But in fact, it hadn't ever meant that. And no one had claimed, no one in, um, okay, there were, there were fringe groups who tried to claim that it meant that. But no court had ever claimed that it meant that. No, um, First Amendment expert had claimed that it meant that. Um, what, and by, by turning the ACLU into a producers and a consumers amendment, what that meant is it created an unlimited number of people who felt invested in the First Amendment. Suddenly, the First Amendment is not an amendment just for authors or film producers or public speakers. Now it's an amendment that protects the right of every single person in the country to read or see or hear whatever they want to read or see or hear. Suddenly, everyone has an investment In freedom of speech, not just people, not just the elite few who have access to producing speech. It was really a brilliant move. Um, It was a revolutionary move. It got, and by the 1960s, and if you think about, you know, we all associate the 60s with lots of activism. And, well, it was perfect. The 60s were a time when people really grabbed onto this new way of thinking about freedom of speech and started demanding their right to read a particular book. So, for example, um, when magazines or books were banned or um, were removed from shelves in the 1960s, people protested. People demanded the right to read them, and people took cases to court and demanded that they had a right to sue um, on the basis of their freedom of speech rights to consume.
0: So what's interesting about this is that sex becomes another, sex expression, sex uh, products, any kind of thing around sexuality becomes another product in a marketplace of ideas of, where there are people who are trying to profit off this. And this is what's fascinating to me, they this convolution of capitalism with this freedom. And on top of that, um, you have a situation where people, there are people on the other side who are saying we want to boycott, that are boycotting protesting against certain movies being shown in their communities. And the ACLU now is having to deal with, wait a minute, can these other people uh, have an opposing speech?
1: Absolutely. So whereas boycotting, say boycotting a store for selling a dirty magazine, might have been considered, well, that's democratic behavior. That's what we do. We behave collectively. We exercise our right to, you know, to not shop at a particular store. We exercise our right to criticize the products that a particular store sells. Um, Under the ACLU's new concept of the First Amendment, boycotts began to seem like violations of that amendment. To the extent that a boycott was effective and persuaded, say, the local drugstore to stop carrying Playboy magazine, the local drugstore was preventing its local customers from buying Playboy magazine. So the ACLU said that would be censorship. That's a violation of their First Amendment rights to read Playboy magazine. So under this consumer consumers concept of the First Amendment,
0: boycotts of speech became censorship. So is it conf- it's conflating uh, the government's control of speech and just you know public popular. Uh, Censorship, You know, people, just a community deciding they don't want it. So this was all the same.
1: Absolutely. No longer is the government the only entity that can exercise censorship. Suddenly, anyone can exercise censorship. The school principal can. The school librarian can. The drugstore owner can. Your parents can. Everyone becomes a censor. Everyone becomes a consumer.
0: Wow. I thought that was fascinating. Now, the other thing that happened next, of course, was... Uh, the right to be left alone in the bedroom and privacy, the establishment of privacy as a fundamental civil liberties. This is an extremely important right uh, th- today because it's evoked all the time. And, Absolutely. But there's a double, double-edged sword there, so explain that to
1: us. Yeah, I was—I just participated at American University's Washington Law School in a, um, a symposium that was um, to commemorate the... 50th anniversary of our right to privacy, which was established in the 1965 Supreme Court case Griswold v. Connecticut. And the ACLU was a very um, prominent participant in that Supreme Court case. The ACLU had been involved in defending birth control activists since the 1920s. Um, By the 1960s, it was um, defending birth control activists' efforts to overturn the last remaining laws against birth control and the the last, the, the really harsh, Final ones were in Connecticut. Connecticut actually um, prohibited by law the right not only to prescribe birth control or distribute information about birth control, but the right to actually use birth control. So Connecticut's law was incredibly invasive. I mean, it meant that it was illegal for a married couple in their own home to use birth control. Um, So the ACLU um, got involved in working with birth control activists in Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood Federation of America, and the Planned Parenthood Federation of Connecticut to try to overturn these final laws against birth control. Um, What the ACLU ended up arguing is that laws against birth control violate a basic right to privacy. It may not be a right to privacy that is actually articulated in the U.S. Constitution, but it's a right that is implied in a number of different um, constitutional amendments, um, amendments that later... The Supreme Court justices called the, the penumbra of the Constitution. Um, the AC—it's interesting. I asked Melvin Wolf, who was a, a primary um, lawyer, ACLU lawyer, who participated in the Griswold case, and I asked him. And he wrote the, a brief that really kind of hammered out what this private where this privacy right came from in the Constitution and why it's so important. And I asked him, how did you get the idea of using the right to privacy to defend the right to use birth control? And he said, well, at the same time that he was working with the Griswold case, or in other birth control cases, he was also working on a case called Map v. Ohio. Map v. Ohio involved a woman in Ohio whose home had been raided by police because they suspected that she had... I think was involved in drugs or something. Um, they had a search warrant to look for drugs. What they found in their search for drugs was obscenity. <laughs> and so she, um, her name was Map. I can't remember her first name. She ended up in court for possessing obscenity when, in fact, the, the search warrant only pertained to, you know, drugs. So um, the, the ACLU attorneys defending MAP in Ohio were trying to carve out a right to privacy, as in she should have a right to privacy in her home that would prevent police from using a search warrant designed to look for drugs to also look for obscenity and pornography. Melvin Wolf was working on that case at the same time he was working on the birth control cases, and so he had kind of had privacy on the brain. He had this you know he was thinking about the kind of privacy people should have in their own homes and thinking about the fact that Connecticut couples were in theory um, in danger of having their bedrooms investigated by police to see if they were using birth control there um, so so it, it's interesting to see how. Kind of the the historical context of major players in historical events have a huge impact on on shaping how they think about them and how they, you know, and and how they,
0: um, how they, how they how they address particular issues. What's interesting about uh, that section of the book is you don't uh, talk about it very much about how Alfred Kinsey, uh, in his uh, studies of sexuality, affected. How they built their arguments. Was there a connection there? I mean, are they drawing Absolutely. from him? Absolutely. Many ACLU attorneys,
1: especially Harriet Pilpel and Morris Ernst, um, represented Alfred Kinsey. Alfred Kinsey was often um, in trouble with the police because he tried to import materials that the police or the customs officials considered obscene. Um, and so he secured the services of Harriet Pilpel and Morris Ernst, who were both practicing private attorneys as well as ACLU board members. Um, Pell-Pell and Ernst work very closely with Kinsey. They actually even um, participated in one of his studies, so their personal sexual histories are included in his um, battery of sexual histories. Um, In the process of representing Kinsey, they learned a lot about his work and about the research that he was conducting, the findings that he was um, concluding, and they brought those ideas back into the ACLU conversations. So they would come to the ACLU board meetings and say, wow, you should hear what Kinsey is finding. Kinsey is finding that couples that don't have access to birth control um, often have to abstain sexually, and that's bad for their marriages. Um, Then they would go back to Kinsey and say, Alfred, Kinsey, guess what? Um, The ACLU is finding that there's this right to privacy that ought to protect couples' rights to use birth control. So the ACLU was... ACLU attorneys were taking ideas back and forth between Kinsey and the ACLU and Planned Parenthood and the ACLU, and they participated in what I call a process of kind of cross-pollination where they're helping these organizations to think and speak in terms of civil liberties but also helping to bring the values and the conclusions and the ideals
0: and the goals of these organizations um, into the ACLU as well. Now, there's uh, another issue with privacy is besides, we always think of privacy issues coming uh, with uh, Roe v. Wade. That's where it made its big you know, headline. Uh-huh. Uh, but the other issue is the right to solicit um, sex in public and how that was tied into the right to park privacy. Right. That was a really tricky
1: issue for people in the ACLU. They argued and argued over whether um, prostitution or public solicitation ought to be a protected act. Some people claimed, and they, they, they didn't really resolve it in the in the time that uh, period that I study this, that I, that I cover in this book. So by the end of the 20th century, they didn't completely resolve it. Some people argued that public solicitation is really about speaking in public about a private matter. And your private conversations, even if they happen in public, ought to remain private. Um, and other people argued that, no, if you're trying to um, engage in a commercial Activity, like um, hire someone to have sex with you, that is, by definition, public. So, it's it's you know, issues of public and private are incredibly tricky, and one of the main arguments in this book is that by turning sexuality into a civil liberty, that the ACLU <laughs> helped to blur boundaries between public and private.
0: The other question I wanted to ask you about was the issue of Playboy, uh, Matt at Playboy, Hugh Hefner, supporting the ACLU and then – they're also running into the whole issue of this uh, feminism move, feminist movement that is emerging in the 1960s and very strong, and they've got feminists in the ACLU and this conflict that happens between the rights of, of, of men and other people to express their sexuality and feminists who are saying, wait a minute.
1: Absolutely. So before the 1970s, most people in the ACLU saw Playboy magazine, which had been founded in 1953, as kind of in the vanguard of defending First Amendment rights. Playboy was this you now it was a magazine that published pictures of nude women and racy um, stories, and um, also very um, erudite articles about um, about risque issues. And so it was. It was a magazine that had taken these issues that had been dealt with kind of under the underground and brought them into the mainstream. It became kind of a coffee table magazine. And the ACLU saw Playboy as a magazine that had helped to expand, you know, expand freedom of speech. Um, They didn't see ACLU leaders didn't see any evidence that um, this was bad for anybody. Um, Playboy magazine also got involved in defending other sexual rights, so Playboy magazine was supportive of the right to birth control, the right to abortion. Um, By the 1970s, though, the ACLU had begun really welcoming feminists, civil rights activists into its midst. The ACLU always had its kind of finger to the wind and could see where the culture was heading, and they could see, ACLU leaders could see, that feminism was hitting high tide in the 70s. Feminists flooded into the ACLU thinking that a civil liberties organization would be useful to, their, to many of their goals. But many feminists saw Playboy magazine as oppressive to women, exploitative to women, as a magazine that, that encouraged sexual objectification of women. So there were lots of battles in the ACLU over um, whether it should be partnering with Playboy, accepting Playboy's donations, um, defending Playboy, publishing letters and articles in Playboy, or whether doing so was, in fact, a betrayal of their new feminist allies.
0: This uh, this showed, I think, a period of time when women were beginning to enter the ACLU in very significant ways as lawyers and really big players in the ACLU, and it seems to have really reshaped and really uh, created a pushback within the ACLU of how it's multitude of different sexual rights were going to expand and how they were going to be seen. Absolutely.
1: Um, yeah, and, and it, I, I want to be clear about the fact that women did not all oppose playboy and um, and men did not not all support Playboy. In fact, there was a lot of um, there were a lot of women who Ruth Bader Ginsburg, for example, was um, um, a lawyer in the ACLU in the 1970s and she thought that the ACLU should in fact partner with Playboy, that Playboy may not represent the best feminist values in a lot of ways. But that it was still um, an organization that had that it supported some feminist values, and it was still it was a magazine that ought to be enjoy freedom of speech. It ought to be protected under the First Amendment. Um,
0: so the other question then we're going to go on to here is um, some of the issues that the feminist movement brought into the ACLU was uh, the issue of rape shield laws uh, and sexual harassment. But some of these things also ran into race issues, and Absolutely. I thought, and, I, and again, we're seeing that that conflict that you often have in American history between women's rights and the rights of African American, particularly African American men.
1: Right. The ACLU historically had been an organization that was really focused on. Um, protecting defendants' rights, criminal defendants' rights. And it was also an organization that had been very prominent in defending the rights of African-Americans, defending civil rights for African-Americans. So when feminists in the ACLU started to complain about the ways that rape um, was treated in the courts and complained that rape defendants had more rights than um, plaintiffs in rape cases, Um, the ACLU got very nervous. Um, Feminists started demanding that, um, that testimony that had been allowed into rape cases be omitted, that questions that had been allowed in rape cases be omitted. For example, it was... Typical. It was normal. It was commonplace for women who accused a man of rape to be questioned about details about their sexual lives, um, and to have to and to really find them, they felt like they were finding themselves on trial. And they argued that in fact, in rape cases, women the woman was on trial, not the um, not as much as the defendant, sometimes more so. Um, the ACLU and other organizations that put defendants' rights at the front of their agenda thought that this was fine because, in fact, putting the plaintiff on trial was a way of increasing the defendant's rights. So when women started arguing that they wanted rape shield laws or laws that would shield a woman's sexual history from a rape case, um, laws that would shield a plaintiff's identity from the press, um, the ACLU pushed back. The ACLU said this would undercut defendants' rights, and this would undercut freedom of speech because it would prevent the media from publishing the names of plaintiffs who had brought cases. The ACLU argued defendants' names appear in the press. Why shouldn't plaintiffs' names appear in the press as well? So rape shield laws were a point of real contention for feminists um, and civil libertarians in the 1970s.
0: Uh, Sexual harassment was not as as simple as we think of it either. Uh, We think of sexual harassment right now as pretty clear and simple. But at, there were there were actu- actually people advocating for this for what we would call harassers right to harass. So please <laughs> please talk about that. I don't know if I agree that such harass
1: <laughs> simple to say actually, but um I do think there's probably more agreement today than there was when feminists start, first started crafting the concept of sexual harassment. There had been no name for sexual harassment until the late 1970s. Um, Catherine McKinnon and Karen Savigny are typically um, um, credited with having come up with that concept. Uh, by the 1980s, a lot of uh, organizations are starting to recognize it as a legal concept. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission – Starts to create, to treat sexual harassment as a violation of women's rights to equal employment. Corporations start to create sexual harassment policies, so do campuses. Um, The ACLU is also um, agrees that sexual harassment is a violation of women's right to equal employment, but the ACLU got nervous when that sexual harassment started to include what became known as hostile environment sexual harassment. There's quid pro quo sexual harassment, and that means when an employer or a superior offers an inferior um, or a subordinate um, some kind of benefit in exchange for a sexual favor. That's called quid pro quo. Hostile environment is when um, an employee feels as if the workplace has become hostile because usually it's a she, so I'll say she, because she has been subject to sexual advances or to sexual jokes or to sexual comments that make her feel uncomfortable um, or make her feel discriminated against. The ACLU, um, the majority in the ACLU tried to argue that actually that was, that that kind of sexual, that that wasn't really sexual harassment, that was an exercise of freedom of speech, that if people in a workplace wanted to, put up pictures of nude women, they should be able to do so. They're exercising their freedom of speech. If they wanted to circulate jokes, um, sexual jokes about women, they should be able to do so. They're exercising their freedom of speech. Other feminists in the ACLU, of course, argued the opposite. They argued that that creates a hostile environment that makes the workplace unequal for women. Um, This all came to a head in a case um, in the 1990s um, that involved a firefighter in California. Um, his fire station had adopted a new sexual harassment policy that said that firefighters could not bring magazines like Playboy into the fire station. Um, they noted that there are female firefighters, that male and female firefighters are living in very close proximity and in intimate you know, ways together. They're sleeping in the same spaces. They're often spending 24 to 48 to 72 hours in the same space together. And they said that Allowing firefighters to bring these kinds of magazines and even movies into the fire station creates a hostile environment for women. Um, the ACLU defended Playboy magazine in this case. Playboy argued, Playboy defended the firefighter who argued that bringing Playboy into the fire station was um, his right, his First Amendment right, and that the sexual harassment policy that the fire um that the fire station had adopted was, in fact, a violation, and they won in the courts. So the sexual harassment policy had to be changed so that Playboy magazine and Playboy videos could be brought into the fire station. The only exception was that they had to be read and viewed privately. So a firefighter was not supposed to take his Playboy magazine centerfold around and hold it in the face of a female firefighter, but he was allowed to sit on his bed, sit in the, you know, the common room, whatever, and read it because he had a right to read. So this goes back to the consumer right that the ACLU had helped to establish back in the
0: 1940s. What 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 struck me about the entire book, the entire arguments that are being put forth, they're very individualistic. They're very much grounded in a very strong individualistic sort of ethic. And there seems to be no regard in, in all this for the community except, of course, opposition, boycotts and communities fighting against, or in the case of people uh, saying uh, uh, they don't want to be exposed to unwanted sexual material, Uh, pornography that's coming in the mail into your home. They don't want to walk around the streets and have people solicit them for sex. So there is this uh, constant tension between different individual rights without any consideration of a a wider or bigger way that we're going to live together.
1: Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's a basic fundamental criticism of a civil libertarian approach to the law and society, I think, is that civil libertarians privilege individual rights over any civil libertarians will argue there is nothing. There's no such thing as the public good or the common good, or public welfare. They'll say, we're all a bunch of individuals living together. There is no public good. What you try to call the public good, Lillian, is in fact your own particular perverse, you know, idea about what's good for me, and in fact, um, if, if if we let you get by with claiming that what you think is good for all of us is the public good, that violates my individual rights. So civil libertarians just take a very individualistic view of the world um, that, That misses, I think, a lot of – and this is one of the arguments in the book, that by doing so, the ACLU has – not has prevented, it hasn't prevailed on everything, but that it, it fails to acknowledge the ways that compromises have to be made for us to share public spaces, for example, just like compromises have to be made when we share private spaces.
0: And also, there was arguments made about uh, children access to a lot of things. if things are just floating around uh, and then you can say, "Well, the parents have the responsibility to educate their children, but that means you're thinking that parents are solely responsible for their children and that their community has no will not help parents at all support parents at all in their parenting. You're just right. sort of on your own exactly it's, well and.
1: and- as one, um, as Harriet Pilpel pointed out in one of these debates with other ACLU members, she said, um, "You know, these people are, the people on the ACLU National Board are having their conversations in New York City, a place where." Um, you can't really shield children from lots and lots of things. So Harriet Pilpel said, "Really, do we want to have um, a live sex show in the you know storefront window that my children pass on their way to school? <laughs> what kind of education is going to um, make that make it okay for them to walk by that scene on their way to school?" Um, I think it's interesting. You know, I don't really know what, I mean, the ACLU tends to take an absolutist approach to freedom of speech and to act as if there are no, there should be no boundaries between public and private. Um, I don't know how far it would actually go, though. I mean, I think most people really want to have a public world that doesn't include all of the, all of these scenes that most of us associate with private life. I think most people still want, uh, maybe I'm totally wrong, actually, when I think about how sexual imagery and display and conduct has invaded our public life from you know what we see on television to what shows up online to billboards, um, but I, I, I do think that most people still want there to be a division between, what, between public and private life, one that in some ways is defined by sexuality. I don't think we want to walk outside and see our neighbors having sex in the yard. I may be wrong, but
0: I, <laughs> I don't want to see that. <laughs> well, what's interesting is they started off with trying to protect privacy, but now the right of privacy has told, it has is dissolving the wall yes. between the private and the public. And the irony of that is quite astounding and interesting.
1: It's, it's another fascinating thing that I found in the course of doing this research is that at the same time that, that the ACLU established a really, what, what has become a pretty solid um, right to privacy in the Constitution, most people, very few people argue that it shouldn't exist anymore. We simply argue over what it should mean. Um, at the same time that it established the right to privacy, it also... Brought sexuality into the public sphere and publicized sexuality in ways that had never been publicized before. So it kind of deprivatized sex at the same time that it's creating um, a concept, an individualized concept of sexual privacy. And the ACLU would say that that wasn't its intention. What it's doing, in fact, is trying to increase public access. To whatever the public wants consumer rights.
0: So were this was there any reflection within the ACLU as they're moving in these ways about maybe the unintended consequences, what they're doing could mean that maybe what they're going for is not exactly what they're going to get? Was there any debate or thoughtfulness that they think about it in terms of what are we doing and what you know what does this mean for it? We, we know what we want, but we may get something we don't want. Yeah, one of the really
1: interesting things about this research is that it let me kind of get, I mean, I was reading the minutes of meetings, and, um, and often those minutes were incredibly detailed, and I also interviewed a lot of people who participated in these debates, and it's fascinating to see how um, they really were, people in the ACLU are not all on the same side of any question, they really have intense debates, and so I, I would not say that anything the ACLU as an organization has done was done without a lot of thoughtful debate behind it, a lot of rigorous, thoughtful debate. So often the ACLU's positions come out looking very absolutist, very um, kind of harsh and rigid. But behind that, there are a lot of people who, you know, a lot of people in the ACLU who actually think the position is too harsh and too rigid. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot of thoughtfulness. Um, it's, but, it's, but again, I think aclu in general are committed to the notion of individual rights, and they're willing to sacrifice a lot of what you and I might consider the common good to those individual rights because they see they, – they would say the common good is honoring individual rights. Uh,
0: the other issue, of course, that's very much in the press today is we're talking about homosexual, uh, same-sex marriage. And uh, – the ACLU has a long history of intervening in the rights of homosexuals to engage in homosexual acts, to express it, to read about it. So uh, it's kind of interspersed in your book. can you Can you talk a little bit about how that the case that we have today of uh, allowing or wanting to allow same-sex marriage is really built up over a long period of time of advocacy on the behalf of homosexuals? Absolutely.
1: Um, individuals in the ACLU back to the 1920s, um, had close friends who were homosexuals. They were involved in this bohemian environment in Greenwich Village that brought them into contact with homosexuals. Um, there were individuals who were homosexual often closeted in the ACLU in the 1950s and 60s, um, and individual homosexuals who experienced discrimination often wrote to the ACLU in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s, begging the ACLU to recognize the discrimination they faced as a violation of civil liberties. It wasn't until the 1970s and 80s that the ACLU was able to figure out how to craft um, discrimination against homosexuals as a civil liberties matter. Um, it's, it started for them, I think, um, well, Most importantly, it was the Griswold case, the 1965 birth control case, that provided the ACLU with a foundation for arguing for homosexual rights. The Griswold case provided for a right to privacy for married couples. But at at the same time, by providing the right for married couples to use birth control on the privacy of their own homes, what the ACLU did, was what the case did, was it recognized the marital unit was not simply a reproductive one, that, in fact, there's a reason to support marriage that is not reproductive. That laid groundwork for acknowledging same-sex marriages that aren't reproductive. It also acknowledged, the case acknowledged, that sexual behavior that was non-reproductive was still valuable sexual behavior. So that Griswold case was absolutely essential, I think, for helping to over to overturn sodomy laws and also for helping to lay groundwork for... Same-sex marriage today. If heterosexual couples can have non-reproductive sex, and that's valuable, and that's legal, and that's okay, then why not have non-reproductive sex that has been banned by sodomy laws? Why not get rid of sodomy laws? Um if it's okay for married couples, married heterosexual couples to have non-reproductive sex, why not same-sex couples? So because a lot of the laws around sexuality had been about issues of reproduction, had been about encouraging reproduction and valuing only reproductive relationships and reproductive sexuality, Griswold completely obliterated all of that in ways that um, created opportunities, I think, for same-sex individ- you know, couples to make rights claims. And, and ACLU leaders realized that. Attorneys who were involved in Griswold said, you know what, if we can get the Supreme Court to accept our, our arguments for privacy in
0: Griswold, we can start using that to build rights for, for gay couples, for gay individuals. And there's the issue of the mail. Uh, you were talking about the U.S. Postal Service censoring what was going through the mail. So that homosexuals who were getting materials You know, homosexual magazines or uh, gay magazines were often, you know, questioned and harassed by their local postal authority. Right. The mail plays. The postal system plays a really, really tricky um,
1: roles in this story. On the one hand, postal officials were in fact harassing individuals who subscribed to um, homophile magazines or. Physical culture magazines they associated with gay men, um, and the ACLU defended those individuals by saying that their freedom of speech, their consumers' right under the First Amendment, meant that they should be able to subscribe to to receive in the mail any magazine or newsletter that they wanted. Um, but another interesting thing about the postal system in this story is that um, in the nineteen in the nineteen sixties. Mass mailing commercial mass mailings became a very popular way of selling things. And a lot of the kind of racy magazines that were startup companies in the 1960s would send out hundreds of thousands of mass mailings with very explicit images to try to market their magazines. And they sent them to everybody and anybody. They'd show up in anybody's mailbox or in anybody's mail slot. You remember those mail slots people had in their front door? The mail would come right in and land in your entryway. So these mass mailings with very explicit sexual images were showing up inside people's homes in their private spaces (laughs) um, unsolicited. So many individual consumers by the 1970s are saying, okay, my right as a consumer should also include the right to not receive information I don't want, material I don't want, material I find offensive. And those consumers actually prevailed. ACLU bucked them. The ACLU said, no, that commercial vendors should have the right to mail, that anybody should have the right to mail anything they want to anybody they want. Um, you can simply throw it away and individual consumers got together and, um, and, and resisted. And in fact, they were able to get laws passed that you and I can use today. Like, in fact, I used it a few years ago to tell Victoria's Secret to quit sending me stuff because I considered it offensive. Um, so, in fact, we have more control over what shows up in our mailbox today than people did before the 1970s.
0: So, now that's going to bring up the big issue, of course. You know what it is the internet. Now we've oh, got gosh. how is the ACLU currently dealing with, uh, I mean, we have got massive, massive uh, types of pornography on the internet, and sometimes you run into it without even meaning to. You know, I- you're. You're no. just, you know, you put in a no. sexual term because you want medical information and you get everything.
1: That's right. It's today's, it, it, the Internet is to us today what the postal system was to consumers maybe in the 1970s. Um, I've seen no indication that the ACLU approves of any limits on what shows up on the Internet. Um, I mean, they'll say, Lillian, get yourself, you know, some, you know, net nanny software if you don't like that stuff to show up. Um The ACLU has been involved in cases where they've made arguments that requiring a person to enter their birth date to get into a particular site is an undue burden on the consumer. Um, They certainly think it's an undue burden on the consumer to have to enter a credit card number to get into a particular sexually explicit site. Um, So the ACLU is resisting any efforts really to limit what people have access to, On the internet, and again, that goes back to their notion of the consumer's right to access anything
0: he or she wants. Is there some pushback? Where's pushback coming from? Um, Sure,
1: there are lots of organizations. Um, I couldn't give you names of organizations right now. This is not research I've done, but um, people who are concerned about um, who are trying to pass, you know, acts that um, that will. Limit what shows up on the internet. I, I don't know. I don't know enough about that to talk about that, Lillian. Sorry. Okay,
0: that's fine. That's fine. Okay, Leanne, this has been a fascinating interview. I I do have to ask you another question before we go on. Um, where do you think your book is useful, and what other uh, studies do you think need to be done? Research needs to be done, in you know, that go along with what you've done here. It's pretty amazing what's there. Thank you. Um, I hope. I think is I think.
1: I think this book can be useful to anybody. I just, I mean, I, I loved writing it. I found out so many things that I could never have imagined. Um, I find it fascinating myself. I'd like to reread it, which sounds ridiculous. But um, I think it's it's especially interesting to people who have an inter- a pre existing interest in issues of sexuality, civil liberties, or women's history. Um, or people who just want to understand more about how we. Who, who want to who want to understand how we came to be and think the ways we do as sexual beings in the 21st century? I mean, I think most people think of sexuality as kind of a, it's a biological thing. It's a biological drive. It's natural. And in fact, what my book shows is that it's really constructed. And the ways that we inhabit ourselves, our own you know bodies and our lives as sexual beings today has a lot to do with. Um, the ways that that sexual the sexual civil liberties were constructed in the 20th century. Um, this book was about turning points. I didn't try to do a comprehensive history of sexual civil liberties at all. So what I was doing with this book was finding moments when there were changes in the ways that people litigated, legislated, um, talked publicly. Um, thought about issues of sexuality. And so what I I think there's so much more to be done. Any of the turning points I identify could give rise to 10 more books or 20 more books. Um, I think there's lots and lots of work to be done. So I feel like the book, in fact, opens up lots of um, scholarly opportunities rather than closing anything down.
0: So what are you working on now?
1: What I'm working on, I'm, I'm just getting started. I have a sabbatical next year, so I'll be able to really launch my next project. I'm interested in looking at the connection between Um, women's growing equality in the United States and the increased sexualization of women's bodies. So I think a lot of people associate women's equality with sexuality. So they will, you know, you see a woman in a bikini and say, oh, she's liberated. Um, And what I'm doing with this book is looking at moments across the 20th century and into the 21st when women have made particular um, gains So, for example, I look at um, women getting the right to suffrage and looking at the connection between women getting the right to vote in the 19-teens, and they got the right to vote in 1920, but I'm looking at the connection between women getting the right to vote in 1920 and changes in women's fashion. Is there a connection between getting the right to vote and the very revealing flapper fashion that became so popular in the 1920s? In the 1940s, is there a connection between women taking industrial jobs, wearing, you know, those Rosie the Riveter work suits, and the rise of pinups? Pinups are the um, kind of the sexualized and um, stripped down images of women that were popular during World War II. Um, The U.S. government even participated in producing them for soldiers. And it's fascinating. Why in the 1940s is the US government contributing to the creation of imagery that only a few years before it declared obscene? <laughs> and I think there's a connection between women's growing equality in the workforce during the war and this attention to women's sexuality. I have a theory that as women, as, as differences between women and men become decreased, that there's growing attention to the differences that remain and those differences that remain are largely anatomical and reproductive. And how do you demonstrate, call attention to anatomical and reproductive differences? You strip women down. So I feel like there's a connection between growing female sexual display across the 20th century and women's growing equality in politics, law, employment, etc. But that's what I want to explore. I want to see how that played out. And I'm identifying, mo- again, I've been looking at turning points um, in my next book.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Leanne. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books in Gender Studies. This is your host, Lillian Barger.